0: Welcome to Coming Up for Air, the Allies in Recovery podcast, with hosts Laurie McDougall, Kayla Solomon, and Dominique Simone Levine.
1: Hey ladies, how are you doing?
0: Good. Morning.
1: Oh, you sound so excited. Okay. So last week we talked a lot about module five and we touched on a few of the struggles and the difficulties of module five, but we didn't get to touch on a few key points out of that module. So module five is my loved one is not using. So now what? So What do you ladies think about kind of continuing on with this conversation? Because there were a lot of pieces that I worry that family members might miss. And um, it's really important that we kind of point those out and we make a connection between module five and module six and how they really work well together. What are your thoughts?
2: That sounds great.
0: Why don't I start by just reminding us of what we covered last time in looking at module five, remember that module five is the unit that talks about how you're going to respond when your loved one isn't using. And by isn't using, we mean, isn't using right now, in the moment, on the phone call, in person, in the present moment, and you're going to reward that behavior, right? If they are using, you're going to take that reward away. That's one of the main things you do when you do see use. And so we talked about how we define use, which is basically the world divides into what I want families to do is to focus on the observable behaviors of their loved ones that has to do. With the drug or the alcohol that you're looking to influence to affect to diminish and ultimately to engage and connect with your loved one, so that you can um, improve. The situation by encouraging them to try things they haven't tried that might improve their situation wellness activities recovery activities treatment medication assisted treatment whatever you can find whatever you think they would do you know so that's a conversation in and of itself but right now we want you to just build your awareness understand what you're seeing in front of you and what to do when they're not using which is to reward And we start with the the focus on the awareness and the present moment and then we talked about how that world divides in two not using reward using which is right before they use while they're using in withdrawals or hungover from the use that's all using in our definition of use there you remove rewards you allow natural consequences and that's a very subtle conversation what is a natural consequence and can you allow it and overall safety of both you and your loved one, and ultimately your neutral removal of yourself as well from that situation if you can. It protects you, it doesn't engage you in a conversation with somebody who is under the influence or in very bad shape because they're withdrawing, right? So there's every reason to just remove yourself. We talked about what rewards look like, the difference between material rewards, the tickets, the games, this, the, that, and this connective type of rewarding, which we're very happy and prefer almost to see families try the connective of paying attention, of eye contact, of a smile, of a hug, things that are gonna provide both of you an opportunity to touch base, connect, bond in that moment not easy to do. You have to pair it with the behavior. So when you see a reward, when you see a behavior that you want to reward, you have to reward in in short period of time so that it's linked to that behavior, right? So we talked a little bit about the intricacies of that. So we can start today by talking about the opposite when my loved one is using right now, now what? And start to talk about removing, let's talk about removing rewards first thing. What does that look like? So that's module six, removing
1: these immediate rewards and what that looks like. And I'm also hoping that we can kind of put on the back burner and talk about natural consequences, because I think that's actually a really great topic that, again, is can be misunderstood and can actually, natural consequences sounds like an easy thing to do, but it is so not. It is so difficult to just allow for natural consequences. So why don't you get us started, Dominique? What about removing rewards? Get us started with module six.
0: So first off, to remind listeners that we're talking about subtle changes that you're making in your behavior. And when you look at your loved one and you decide they're using or they're not using, you're doing it internally right you're not asking your loved one because we know what happens when you ask somebody are you high i can see you're high if you do that you get pushback you're going to get defense denial anger confrontation you're going to go right down the the hole and so we want you to decide this internally or with your other family members if you're working in concert with other family members in the house or on a three-way call or whatever's going on you want to decide my loved one is using right now or my loved one is not using right now. And you're gonna do that based on what you learned in module three, the exercises we put you, the awareness you now have about the drug, its symptoms, what and when your loved one uses and all the rest of it. Now that you have an idea, you do have to come down on one side of the equation or the other 100%. You may be like 60% sure. I'm pretty sure he's using. I, I can't be really sure but i'd say 60%. well you got to come down 100% into the camp of he is using. and the reason is we want your behavior, your response to their use as though they were definitely using and you have to act 100% like they're using. so what does that look like? you're not going to reward when they come through the door. so you may need to look, you know, give them a bit of a bear hug because that's what you normally do and Gives you a chance to take a sniff, look at their eyes, you know, get any final resolution as to which side you're coming down on. But let's say, okay, I'm going to say he, I'm, I'm say they're using. Then you're going to say, hey, glad to see you home, hug, and now I'm going to back out. I'm not going to offer dinner. I'm not going to say, let's why don't we take the dog for a walk? I'm not going to do anything connective, rewarding. Certainly not going to start providing anything. So. You know, it's late. I'm going to just go back to bed. I'll see. I'll talk to you in the morning. Have a good night. That's it. That's the removal of reward. So I prefaced all that by saying, you know, families get really caught up in, well, I can't tell. I'm not sure. And all that. This is a a guessing game. This is an informed opinion based on everything that you're hearing from us and learning from us. And you've got to do your best with the the guesstimates. So they weren't high, you were wrong. They just cut home, they were kind of sick, they've been sick with the cold. So how horrible was it that you removed rewards? Good night, I'll talk to you tomorrow, right? You removed yourself, you removed rewards, and you allowed the natural consequences, which if I were a good friend of yours and you came home high, I wouldn't want to be with you, so I, I, I would leave you standing at the door with no food, nothing to do, my friendship, it's all gone, right? That's a natural consequence. They may oversleep in the morning. If you can allow that to happen without it endangering your income, if it's too risky for you, then maybe you go ahead and wake them up in time for work because you, everybody needs this person to continue working. But if that's not the case, maybe you allow this person to oversleep. So we're looking at these changes that you can make. They're in your toolbox. You've been using them for years. We're just asking you to be more strategic in how you pull them out, how you take them away, understanding that they all create this environment. You are creating in part an environment around your loved one. So we want you to understand what they're feeling and thinking and seeing and and your responses are critical to that.
2: So I just wanna say one thing that when I'm listening to you, Dominique, this is such a good reasoning about why we don't make accusations about what we think the person is doing. I think you're high, I think you're on coke, you look like you're withdrawing. So the most important thing to me about the craft work is that you remove those statements. The questions about whether they're using, the statements about what you think they're doing in terms of the actual use, Because what happens is that sets it up for right and wrong, defensiveness, you pushing the person, you making accusations, and there's a chance that you might not be accurate about it. The thing that I like about this style is you're not wrong. You have a feeling about something, you're noticing things, and you're stepping back without making any kind of pronouncements about what you think is going on. You're just stepping back so that the subtlety of it is much more helpful than the statements, because I think that we all have this belief that if we make these declarative statements like, I know you're using, or "You, you look high, or there's something wrong with you, that we're actually giving this useful information that allows for the rest of the conversation, but it's the complete opposite. Also, what we're describing is the power of connection and the power of disconnection. So, we think that nobody can, they don't care about us. They're out there doing their old thing. We're we're meaningless. But we don't realize how much we step forward and we're trying to do and we're trying to be there. And by us removing that, it is actually one of the most important negative rewards, the the lack of reward is removal. And I would think of it as removal is you walk away. You just walk away. No big statements, not any mood, not making a face, not having the tone, just passively, not passively, just neutrally walking away. And I think that that's very powerful.
1: I totally agree. And I kind of want to piggyback on what both of you have said. One, I think that when family members first start to do module five and module six, it can feel very awkward because it can feel like, well, I've got to find the rewards. I don't quite understand exactly what type of rewards. Oftentimes, what I see is a lot of family members, when they first start doing this, when they're planning out rewards, it's very much the things that they line up, like video games, you know, things, money. And actually, it's the connective rewards. I call them connective rewards. So it's the words of praise. It's the hug. It's the, I'm going to spend time with you and engage with you. So, understanding that those are pretty powerful rewards. And so, if you, when we talk about removing immediate rewards, that's you. Get yourself out of there and disconnect in the moment, not permanently, but in the moment. I'm going to disconnect you, or not you, but from you and this particular behavior. And I think about it now, now, after having practiced it for so long. Now it's more fluid, right? It's more, I don't have to go into investigative mode. It's like, I look at you, ah, okay. You know, you look good. Everything's great. We're okay. So I'm going to engage with you. We're going to have a great conversation or, you know, I'm going to talk to you about your day or whatever. And then all of a sudden, maybe I see a sign that I didn't see before. And it's like, hmm, uh uh-oh. I think there was use. Okay, well, I got to, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm headed upstairs. I'm going to read or I'm going to go take a bath. Maybe we can talk in the morning or maybe we can talk in the afternoon tomorrow. And it's more fluid. It's not this, oh my God, I can't reward or I should reward or I got to remove rewards. It's not. Also, I think of it like this. If I was out with friends and a good friend of mine, they were drunk. I'm not going to want to continue to spend the night out with them. Like I might do something like, Hey, I got you home here, go inside, get in the bed. Good night. I made sure they were safe. And then I left. I didn't stay and go, you can't drink, stop drinking like this, or you're going to hurt yourself. I just moved away from it and let them deal with whatever happens. If that makes sense, let them deal with, well, nobody really wants to be around you when you've been drinking so much. And so now it's like, okay, that's what I'm doing. And also both of you said a couple of things that I think is really, really important. Natural consequences are not an easy thing for family members to do. So allowing for natural consequences, and Dominique, you talked about this a little bit, and I think it's really an important piece to make. If you're struggling with natural consequences and just allowing them to happen, you can make them more targeted to that specific behavior and kind of allow for natural consequences where you can allow for consequences. And what I mean by that is, let's say my loved one is drinking a lot or all week long after work and is struggling to get out of bed in the morning but they're the main breadwinner in the family. We've got children, we've got bills to pay. I might not wanna let my loved one sleep in and go to work late during the week because I can't. I really can't. So in that moment, I might not be in those moments like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, in the morning, I'm not really necessarily gonna allow for natural consequences, but on the weekends, on a Saturday, maybe they're coaching their kids' teams or maybe they have some responsibility with their kids or something, well, Saturday might be a time when, okay, I'm gonna allow for natural consequences because my livelihood, our livelihood, isn't at stake here.
2: Okay, let's just define natural consequences, which is that we remove ourself as the protector, Okay, as the saver, as the person who basically makes sure bad things doesn't don't happen to people. That's basically the role that we're talking about. And what Natural Consequences is basically about is that we step back and allow life to just happen to this person. It's not that we're making something happen. It's just that we're not doing our usual role of prevention and emergency services that we are engaged in. Because it's kind of like I've had this conversation with people who have little kids and teenagers and stuff like that. And it's kind of like if you're that I was having this conversation with the father who said, you know, I have to make sure my kid has the right socks to go skiing or it's really cold out. I want to make sure my kid has a hat or gloves And what Natural Consequences is basically about is that you don't say anything, you let your kid go to school without the gloves and the hat, they come home, they're cold, and the next day then it's more on their mind to actually do that. So basically the idea with Natural Consequences is if you allow them to happen, the person is uncomfortable, your loved one is uncomfortable. Your loved one doesn't feel great. Your loved one is not feeling protected. And that hopefully leads to behavior change that they start to see, okay, this isn't good for me, or I don't like that. And of course, I just want to point out that we're working with people who have very serious issues and their level of discomfort shifts as they use. So as people get more and more involved in drugs and alcohol Their ability to handle discomfort rises so that what you would think of is, oh, you know, this is going to make them uncomfortable. They keep doing it. And it's like, how is this possible? How is it possible for my loved one to be living behind the dumpster? And even though they say they're uncomfortable, they go into treatment, they come out and they go back to the dumpster. So that's what we're talking about here. How is it possible that somebody could tolerate such discomfort, but it's our job to let them go through that process and not prevent bad things from happening? And I know that this gets sketchy when it's life and death, and we do have to look at that, but I think that our tendency is to intervene very early in that process.
1: I do think that safety and sanity do come into play here, and we we have to consider that. And that's also why I say, make sure that the natural consequences are targeted, because maybe as a family member, it's like, no, sorry, not going to let that natural consequence occur, because I, I just can't live with it. But find another natural consequence that you can allow to happen, you know, like, I'm just trying to think think of things, you know, some serious things like maybe they lose all their clothes because they're they're living on the streets and someone steals all their clothes. You don't go out and buy them all brand new clothes. You just kind of, okay, what, you know, what are you going to, it's that individual's opportunity to now, I know it's awful, but kind of suffer through that. And I'm not saying that every family should never, now you shouldn't clothe your your loved one. I'm just saying, pick those targeted natural consequences that you can allow to happen. And sometimes we do get to a point where it is dangerous, but I'm going to follow through on this particular boundary because I just can't, I've got to see where this leads me. It's a tricky balancing act when it comes to natural consequences. I think, anyway, I, I found it difficult.
2: So I have more of a question because I have a way of thinking of it, but I'm curious. There's this pattern that we see in our groups and on the site of loved ones that go into treatment and they don't complete it or they're in treatment and then they they relapse and they wind up on the street or they wind up in these very difficult situations. And when we look at people over time, they it's a, it's a recurring pattern. And when we think about this, if it's somebody that keeps choosing to go in and out and in and out and they wind up on the street and they wind up homeless and they wind up living very marginally, I always think about that. like, how do you even think about this? Like, what do you think when you have people who do that in terms of natural consequences? Because the natural consequences in those situations seem very severe. So I wonder what the two of you think about how do family members intervene in those situations?
0: Well, it is severe. It's a very good question and one that isn't, doesn't have a satisfactory answer, especially here in the winter, if your loved one walks out of a residential unit and goes to the street, that's immediately life-threatening. We do tr- try and have families have a backup plan and hopefully the treatment provider also has a plan, but it's, we don't have a good answer for what happens to people who run. I'll tell you what, right now we're working with a family and the woman, the daughter finally managed to get herself arrested and jailed. And so far, mom has been able to not bail her out. And this is with a lot of pressure and a lot of, a lot of pressure from the daughter and the father who feels guilty. And But that is the safest place for her right now. And that is a natural consequence of what she was doing out there. It was because of her drug use, but it got her into some significant trouble where that family has to hold really to keep her protected so that she will be carefully managed over to treatment which is what we're trying to do with her um, means that you don't bail her out and i'm glad to see this woman after running around after her for six months helping the mother to go from here to there to everywhere as she was burning this line through connecticut it's like this is good and after 45 days mother gets a letter from her daughter about what she's reading and what she's thinking and how she's gonna, how life's gonna be different. And it's like, did you ever imagine that allowing her to stay in jail these 45 days and not bailing her out 45 days into it, you would get a letter like that from your daughter, no matter what had happened in these 45 days. You don't know, you don't know, but we know that she's safer in jail than she's safer out there. They're both not good natural consequences but you're not gonna raise it and by letting her out and then possibly her not actually linking up to the treatment she, she really does need to go to next. I don't know if that answers the question, but the treatment system doesn't have an answer for you. It's gonna be the family, it's gonna be strategies like we're talking about on this site. It's gonna be setting up as temporary housing as you can so that they are not in the street if you've got the money and the control to do that. What we suggest, I don't know if these are always suggestions and sort of ideas that come out of the theories that are craft theories right so when i say you know what we suggest it's something like the idea of clearing a room maybe that and making it yours taking their room making it yours if you're a parent they're 28 years old they left treatment for the third time they're not going to be able to just come home this time so you take their bedroom turn it into your art studio, put a a cot somewhere in a public space in your house with a bunker, a a chest so that they can have their their things private and let them home on nights they're not really using or not using. It's the theory of craft applied to your question. How can you set up something temporary enough that they're not permanently back installed in their bedroom with the door locked? They're not out, out on the street. And they have some agency they have a bed they have family they have dinner they have everything if they come home to your home in the moment not high and and then you're going to ask me well how are you going to be sure and what if i get it wrong and you're the judge of getting it wrong it's okay to get it wrong they'll they'll be out in the morning everybody just chill you know and then you just set it up again and you just keep repeating it until they realize they get breakfast when they weren't high the night before instead of the door you know what whatever it is but that's the theory and that's an application of the theory and that's what make out al- makes allies so deep in our bench because we've been doing this and we've been applying these craft really solid craft theories and even the universals like the behaviorism we teach which is like you know animals as well as humans all humans behave in ways that are rewarding and we'll repeat that behavior if we reward it. So that's why we teach it to you and it works and just have to hang in there. And then you have to get very creative about these principles applied to your situation. You know best what might work, what will more likely be acceptable and safe.
1: I have a little bit of a different perspective, and I also, I, I think it is an application of craft, of craft and and what we've learned. So I think that it really depends. It really depends on the family member, and it really depends on a lot of the time we're solely focused on the individual with substance use disorder, and we're not focused on the family member and the stuff that the family member is going through, Right. I strongly believe, and Dominique knows this about me and what I did, but I also think that what I did with my son was he would go off to treatment somewhere, he would have a recurrence, he would end up on the streets, I would try various things, he would want to come home, I would let him come home, but I would set up boundaries. Here are the needs that I have in order for you to come home. And I let him know way ahead of time, if this isn't going to work, then I'll have a list ready. (laughs) And where do you want to go? You know, where will you go? Here's a list of residential treatment. Here are recovery homes. Here are local shelters. And he knew I meant business. But I also feel like I was also well-informed by the time I was doing this, or I was constantly trying to find solutions and until I found craft of things that I could do. So it isn't like I was letting him home and it was just all willy nilly, right? It was just, oh God, he's coming home and you know he has full run of the house, he can do whatever he wants and I'm gonna hope and pray that he's gonna work. And It had to be very structured for me. I had to know particular things because I had already been traumatized. And it was a series of him coming home, having a recurrence, me going and, you know, saying to him, okay, it's not safe. It's not safe for me and your father. It's not safe for you. Here's a list. And at that point, I had started giving him the list and saying, you start making the phone calls and then tell me what you're going to do because here is not an option. And if he decided to do things like go couch surfing or he's going to stay at a friend's house, that's his business. I'm not going to put any money or any effort into it. That's your business. But these other things I can, I will put effort into it and help you get there. And it was a series of him leaving and coming back and leaving and coming back and me tweaking my boundaries every time he came back. So I would say, okay, how, you know, he had a recurrence at this point. What kind of boundary do I need to know that he is going to be um, committed to? And I would just present him with, these are my needs. This is what I need to know. And I know this is going to sound crazy, but I need to know that for at least the first six months you're here, you're not going to be going to any meetings. So it's one of those things that your father and I you're not going to ask us for rides. We're not taking you there. It's not happening. And the reason why, and trust me, I'm not against meetings. That wasn't my thing. My thing, you know, there were other meetings he could go to. He could do smart recovery. He could go to other places. The problem was, was that when he was here, he was going to meetings and getting his drugs. And I knew that. So it was like, nope, I know what's going on in the meetings around here. For the first six months, don't even ask. It's just it's just not going to happen. And if, if you're going to go to those meetings, where are you going to go? Because you're not staying here. It's not safe here. From what I remember, because now it's multiple times. I mean, it's at least 11, 12 times that he left and came back and left and came back and left and came back. But I will also tell you that the last time that he did come back, I could sense that he was incredibly serious about things. and he did say to me, Mom, I, I will die if I stay here. I'm not going to be able to go into recovery. I know I can't, please, please. And again, I tweaked my boundaries. and my thought process and and this just kind of, I think might help professionals and you asking this question, Kayla that my thought process as a family member was, if I don't let him home, and I really thought this through, if I don't let him home, and he stays on the streets, he is going to die. There is no doubt in my mind. He is. And if he does die, what's going to happen with me? And I was like, well, I'm gonna cry, I'm gonna be devastated, I'm gonna feel guilty for the rest of my life that I didn't let him home. And then I thought now, and then I considered the other end of it. Okay, what if I let him home? Cause he could die if he comes home too, he could die. I think he was less likely to die because we were supporting him. He was agreeing to going into an IOP. He was gonna go on medicine assisted treatment. He was gonna go on Suboxone. So he had agreed that, yes, he was going to do all of these things when he came home, but he still could die. And so my thoughts were, okay, what if he dies at home? What will happen to me? I will feel horrible. I will feel guilty. I let him home. And then I started thinking about it. And I said, you know what? I don't care what everybody else is pressuring me to do or telling me to do. I'm going to do what I think is best. And I just gained this bit of confidence in myself and just said, you know what, I'm working craft. I'm really tightening down my boundaries. It's not like I let him come in the house and just rule the house and walk on everything. And, and I had very specific boundaries because of my own trauma. I had said, no locked doors, (laughs) no locked doors. And I literally was If I was going to find them behind locked doors, it was going to be fine. We're going down to Lowe's and changing the doorknobs on the doors so that there's no lock on it. Or I'll take the hinges off the doors and we'll we'll put a curtain over there because I couldn't live with it. And I even told him that I can't, I can't, I'm sorry, I will pace the floor and I can't be crazy anymore. I've got to be able to take care of myself while you're living here. So my thing is, is that I think that family members actually have to find that for themselves. But I also want family members to know that I don't think that every family member should do things the way I did, that there are lots of family members out there that maybe they just can't, you know, I don't know what's going on, but maybe they just can't live with having their loved one in the house. And so to me, it's, you have to decide. And if you are going to have your loved one home, make sure and be educated, make sure and hone those craft skills, because it's not easy. And I knew it wasn't going to be. I knew I knew it's going to be torture with him here in the house. And it was it was torture, but it was it was also I felt very confident about myself. I felt like, you know what, I'm going to stick through it and I'm just going to really rely heavily on my craft skills. And again, if there was a recurrence, there were recurrences later on. He went long periods at that point in recovery. So I didn't at that point ask that he leave, but I did. It was like, okay, so what are you going to do to get yourself back on track? And he always went back to, it. he was like, yep, yep. There were times he even came to me and said, I really want to go into an IOP. I need that structure right now. I might not learn anything new or whatever, but I need the structure. Okay. Go back into the IOP, do what you got to do. But that's, that's why I say, There are lots of family members that are like, no, I'm not, my loved one's not leaving the house. Okay, well, let's find some way to set up some boundaries because maybe this will work without asking them to leave, but maybe you'll also in the future come to the point and that will be an option, right? So let's work towards whatever it is that's going to work for your family. So I I do want to make it clear because people often think I'm saying people should let their loved one home. Nope, I am not. I know of lots of family members that that is just not gonna work for them.
2: Well, and the one thing I just wanna say about this is that this is a personalized program. And that's why when people ask us questions or even in the group that people ask questions, there's not one answer. And so I like to think about this, that craft and allies is a menu and that the more awareness you have, the more you're looking at patterns, the more you're watching yourself and your loved one over time, the more you're doing experiments of what does and doesn't work, and watching yourself over time because again, this is time. It's not like oh, you're gonna walk in, do the craft model, and that's the end of the story. We all wish that was true, but that is not true. And so, what what this is about is a learning process. And what you just heard is Lori really engaging in a learning process with herself and her son. To see what's worked, what doesn't work. What can I do? What can I not do? What can I live with and not live with? And that's the question that every single person has to ask. And by the way, that also can change over time. Because I know lots of people that have their loved ones living with them or going in and out and living. And then there comes a point like, okay, this is not working. I can't do this anymore. And then they then make a change. But you do have to engage in this awareness process, which is what all of this work is about, is noticing, being aware of yourself. What can you deal with? What can you not deal with? What works? What doesn't work? So this is absolutely about opening your eyes, checking in with yourself in a very, very, very deep way to be noticing things that you might not have paid attention to before. And the more you know about what you're looking for, the more effective this process is going to be for you. And then the decisions are like Lori said, which is, I think, essential momentary. And that's why I use the word pronouncement, because to me, the pronouncement is if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And you put your foot down and then, okay, I know you're high. Get out. That's a pronouncement. (laughs) And to me, it's more like "Mm, this is not working. We're going to come up with a different plan. Here are the options that you're going to talk to your loved ones about. Here are your options. You get to choose what your options are. And if the option happens to be, this is not going to work in this house any longer, then you have to have a list of options outside. And they get to choose. I'm going to go into treatment. I'm going to couch surf. I'm going to be homeless. That's their choice. And then when that happens, you go into your next phase, which is, how do I have connection with the person who's not living in my house? Plan B. And then you're, again, going through the same process again, but with a different circumstance.
1: That's exactly it. Thank you so much, ladies. Um, I do want to remind our listeners that we have a 10-day challenge on the website. So go to the website, do half of the modules in a 10-day period, and you get a free one-day training worth $250. So thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you.